2 Kings chapter 20 this week. As we move in earnest in the home stretch of 2 Kings, as we have this week and two others, to see the end of this stage in the history of the people of God. Not the end of the history of the people of God, because of course that is still being written. And we are a part of it. But I would invite you to turn now to 2 Kings chapter 20. We'll be looking at chapters 20 and 21 this week. So let us look first then at the first 11 verses of chapter 20. Hear now the very Word of God. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. 2 Kings 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take it and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that He has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to go back ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go... It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray for His blessing upon this Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would engraft this Word upon our hearts, that it might change us, that it might renew us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the advantages of being the preacher is you get to think on the implications and the importance of a wonderful text of the Scripture for an extra week as you look at it and you go through. And I was thinking about this text this week when I had an opportunity to see uh, the great philosopher on television. You may know him as the Geico Gecko. 
I was watching this new commercial and they were take as a takeoff a joke on these corporate training exercises where you show trust to one another and you fall back into the person's arms. And so the president of Geico says, come on, let's do this. Let's. And the guy goes about this big and he says, I'll fall back and you catch me. And the guy just kind of looks at the camera like, yeah, right. Everybody knows that's not going to happen. Squish. And what I thought about was that oftentimes, depending on the circumstances, that's our view of God. That there are times when God isn't big enough to catch us. When maybe we want to trust Him, but we think a problem is just a little bit out of His league. Especially when times are difficult. And we're going to see some difficult times here this morning. Difficult times with a good king, and difficult times with a bad king. Yes, problems come to the people of God no matter who is in the temple or the Oval Office. So what I would like us to see first is the freedom that comes from trusting in God. Freedom in trusting. And then we'll look at the end of chapter 20 and we will see the folly that is found in forgetting. Forgetting that the Lord is God. The freedom that we have in trusting and the folly in forgetting. And then finally, the third thing that we will see is we will look into the depths of our own hearts and think that it truly is frightening to trust wholly to the Lord. Freedom in trusting, folly in forgetting, and frightening to trust wholly. Well, let's look then, beginning at the passage that we just read at the beginning of chapter 20. Chapter 20 begins, In those days... And one thing we need to remind ourselves is that the Bible is different than most other books. I say most because some describe events in the same way the Bible does. But we are used to the novel or the newspaper or the story in which things that are described later happen later than things that are described earlier. You know, you start at the beginning, you end at the end, right? It makes sense. Not so always the Scripture. The Scripture can take events as the Holy Spirit sees fit and place them in different places for emphasis. This is our case this morning. The Scripture wants us to see the care and anxiety that Isaiah ha- or that Hezekiah has and how the Lord deals with it. So as we think about casting our cares on the Lord... In order to have freedom, we must remember that in those days is actually happening before chapters 18 and 19. This is before the Assyrians have attacked and surrounded. This is before the deliverance that God has given to Jerusalem. We know this because as we look at verse 6, God promises to deliver them from the Assyrians. If we look at verse 12, we see that there's a Babylonian king. And we know from history that this Babylonian king had risen up against Assyria before the campaign against Israel. And the other thing that you might recall, if you're familiar with this passage, is that later on in chapter 20, Hezekiah shows everything he has in his treasure house to the Babylonians. Only one problem. You may recall that he emptied the treasure house, even stripped the gold off the doors to try and bribe the Assyrians. 
So all of this is happening before God has shown his deliverance to Jerusalem. God wants us to see Hezekiah in the midst of these events, these chaotic events, and what is happening. And the purpose here is not so much to just tell us history, but to show us and to contrast walking by faith and walking by sight. And the first thing that we see is God coming to Hezekiah with what we would call a hard providence. This is a hard providence that many of you have experienced on some level. It's when someone walks in and says, I'm sorry, but you're laid off. We just can't make ends meet. Or when the doctor comes with a big stack of charts and he says, would you please sit down? I have something I need to discuss with you. Or when your child comes up to you and says, Mom, Dad, we really need to have a talk. And that lump comes in your throat. That's what Hezekiah is experiencing here. Place yourself in his shoes in your worst fears. You see, God comes with Hezekiah. He's not some fallible doctor. He's not some x-ray machine that could be broken. God comes by his prophet and he says, put your house in order. You are going to die from this illness. What a thunderbolt that would be to Hezekiah. How that must have upturned his world. What does he do here? He's in the worst kind of jeopardy. The darkness is coming down and really there's little to no hope. Because it's God who's pronouncing the sentence, so to speak. Hezekiah does what he should do when he's in jeopardy. He prays. He turns from himself. He turns from his advisors. He puts his face to the wall that he might focus merely upon God. And he cries out to God in prayer. Now, lest you think, that this prayer is some kind of bargaining with God because he says, O Lord, I remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah here is not simply saying, I've earned a reprieve, O Lord. He is doing something classic in the Old Testament. It's called a lament. We see it all throughout the Psalms. We see David use it. We see it in Psalm 18, for example, that you could look at this afternoon. It is almost a formula. One cries out, pleading his own character, the righteousness that is his by grace. And then says, God, you are merciful. And you have been merciful in the past. Please hear my prayer. It's as if Hezekiah were saying, Lord, you know that I have tried to serve you. And by your grace, I have studied your word. And you are a merciful God. And you have delivered your people from of old. Please deliver me. It is a heartfelt cry. Hezekiah is a real person. He is not a fake Bible person. He doesn't turn from that meeting and say, well, okay, I guess it's time for me to die. He cries out to God. Because you see, this whole illness here, The importance of it is in his response to God, not in the illness itself. The question comes to you, do you think about your circumstances in that way? That what is critical in your life 
is not the 401k and its loss, your health, or even conflict within your family. But what is important is how you respond in faith to those hard providences. That is what God is interested in. Because after all, we see right here that God does care. He cares for Hezekiah. Hezekiah can cast all his cares, to use the language of Peter in his letter, upon God because God cares for him and Hezekiah knows he cares. He figures this out immediately. Look at verse 5. Isaiah hasn't even made it back to the temple. He's in the middle court, the area between the palace and the temple, and God says, go back, turn around. Not an hour has passed. Not 15 minutes have passed. God answers this prayer immediately. And He says, Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer, and you will be healed. You see, God is sovereign And the circumstances are completely within His control. But one thing that we often forget, as we, as good Reformed Presbyterians, crying out about God's sovereignty, we forget that God's sovereignty does not negate prayer. It empowers it. You go to the Lord because He is in control and you are not. And God can do what He will. Sovereignty of God does not render prayer inappropriate. It empowers it. Because you see, the prayer and the answer are all a part of God's plan. God is a prayer-hearing God. He is, to use Bible language, more eager to hear your prayers than you are to speak them. Isn't that a wonderful comfort? To know that God wants you to go to Him. What freedom there is in trusting God. It doesn't matter how bad your situation is. It doesn't matter how bad your problem is. How hopeless it could be. How more hopeless could it be than God Himself telling you, you will die. That is the most hopeless of cases. And Hezekiah feels the great freedom in going to God. Because he knows he can trust Him. God responds immediately. But He also responds staggeringly. Look at what happens here. He answers Hezekiah's prayer. He answers his prayer quickly and in a way in which Hezekiah perhaps could never have dreamed of. And he does it in a way that shows Hezekiah his love for him. If we look at verse 8, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? Now, we may think about that today as someone of little faith who needs a sign, who needs to be pumped up to know what's going on. But that's not the case here. You could actually, I think, properly translate verse 8, and Hezekiah had said to Isaiah. Or you could look at verse 7 as a parenthesis. Hezekiah has said to Isaiah, I trust that the Lord will heal me, but what is the sign by which I may know it clearly? You see, there's a sense in which Hezekiah is improving upon one of his ancestors. Do you remember another famous sign that was given? When Ahaz was told to ask for a sign, and he said, well, no, I wouldn't dare ask for a sign. 
when God wanted him to ask for a sign. And he gave that famous prophecy in Isaiah 7 about the virgin shall conceive. Hezekiah has learned his history. He doesn't want to be like Ahaz. He says, please show me the sign that I might know that you care. He feels this great freedom because of what God has done for him. You see, God answers in a staggering fashion. He heals him completely. He heals him immediately. And He heals him visibly in such a way that He knows right away what has been done. The question comes to you. Do you know that God is greater than you think He is? If you have not trusted the Lord God with your life, with your soul, with your family and your children. He is worthy of that trust. God does things. He is powerful. He is mighty. Trust Him now. Trust Him with everything. Feel the freedom that comes from laying all of your cares upon the One who cares for you. If you carry around that burden at 2 a.m. as you wake up and go to the refrigerator for a glass of water, hoping that sleep will envelop you again and make all of the problems obliterate. If you whistle to yourself as chaos goes on in the home, thinking there's no way that things could be resolved, go to the Lord and trust Him. There is freedom to be found there. God acts immediately. He acts spectacularly and He responds compassionately. Our prayers, like Hezekiah's, matter to God. You see, we are tempted at times to think like pagans. Pagans pray to their gods, scheming, hoping to pry a little morsel from the clutching hands of a hostile Deity. Christians pray to a loving Father who turns in compassion to His children. You see, God doesn't always rescue us from trouble, does He? You know that as well as I do. Sometimes you don't find the new job. Sometimes the debilitating illness doesn't go away. But one thing we do know, God doesn't always turn trouble to good, but He always provides compassion in trouble. And that is a comfort for the Christian. This is the nature of God. It's that famous hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. What does He do? He is always saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me until when? The end. This is the nature of God. We are free to trust in Him. And that takes a burden off our souls. But this chapter also reminds us that there is great folly in forgetting. Because you see, the next instance, perhaps a few days later, maybe a month later, but it's in the same span of time, word gets out that Hezekiah has been cured. And the Babylonians send the special super undersecretary to the secretary of Palestinian affairs. 
And he comes with his two envoys. And they come down to see Hezekiah. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of, Babylon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present for Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. How easily we forget to trust in God. What's going on here? I imagine that many of you, as you look at this text, are thinking to yourself, that what's going on here is Hezekiah is showing off a bit. He's being a bit proud. And God is going to show him, teach him, not to be proud by telling him that the Babylonians will cart all this stuff off. So the lesson is, don't be proud, God won't hurt me. I don't think that's the lesson of this part of the chapter. And I think the secret here, which is not really a secret, is that the Babylonians are coming as envoys with letters. And the letters are not Hallmark Get Well cards. Because remember, this is happening before the Assyrians have invaded Judah. The Babylonians have risen up against Assyria. They have started the Babylonian kingdom up again. And the Assyrians don't like that. And when the Assyrians don't like things, they tend to go out with a big army and squash them. They do that with Babylon, they do it with Egypt, they do it with Philistia, and they try to do it with Judah. So what's going on here? What's happening is these letters are an invitation to an alliance against Assyria. We know from history that Hezekiah allied himself or tried to ally himself with Egypt and with Babylon against Assyria. And we know from the Scriptures that Isaiah walked around all day long saying, don't trust Egypt, don't trust Babylon, trust God. And we know that Hezekiah didn't get the message. We remember from just a couple of chapters ago that God had to forcefully make the point, don't trust other kingdoms, trust me. And so, you can imagine Hezekiah as the news on, I guess it would be JNN, Jerusalem National Network, would come in of the Assyrians fighting and coming after Judah. And he says, isn't this wonderful? The Babylonians are here. We can, we can almost imagine how it would thrill his heart. Oh, you shouldn't have brought what you brought. The gifts. You thought about me so many hundreds of miles away. Oh, I'm so grateful you think about me. You want to be in alliance with me? A big kingdom like Babylon? Oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have. You could imagine him elbowing Sheba, the secretary. They want to have an alliance with us. They think we're worthy of an alliance. Well, you know what? I'm going to show them how worthy of an alliance we are. I'm going to show them how good we are. Look. And he doesn't say, look at all my pretty things. He says, look at all the gold. Look at all the wealth. Look at the armory. Look at all the power that I have. Look what I can bring to the table of a great alliance against Assyria. Together, we will wipe them out. It's a lot about gold. 
It's a lot about weapons. It's a lot about alliances. Guess what there's very little of? God. You see, how quickly we forget. Hezekiah is showing that he is fragile in faith. The context here is, do you want God or Egypt and Babylon? And Hezekiah forgets and he picks Egypt and Babylon. He says, they will help me. I want you to notice something else here from this text in terms of our need to trust God. That oftentimes it is when times are good that it is hardest to trust the Lord. Not when things are bad. Because when things were rotten to the core, when life was at its end, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and sought the Lord. But when he looked out and saw promise and saw alliance and saw wealth and saw power and saw opportunity, God was nowhere to be found. Isn't that sometimes how our lives are? There's even a saying about it, which I don't think is true, that there are no atheists in foxholes. You know, when the shelling starts, everybody prays. When the Dow goes down 40%, everyone seeks the Lord. But when the Dow goes up 40%, what wise investors we are. Right? This is the folly in forgetting. It's not just the folly because we forget God. But we see also how hard His reminders are. Because you see, God will not allow us to forget. Isaiah comes back again in verse 14. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and he said to him, What do these men say? And from where have they come to you? Note to self, anytime a prophet comes asking a searching question, trouble is ahead. What have they said? And Hezekiah says, well, they've come from a far country, from very far away, Isaiah. They've come from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in the storehouses that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who are born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Talk about being shaken out of a waking dream. God, by Isaiah, all but physically shakes Hezekiah back to reality. You think you can trust in these things? You think that means anything? Let me tell you what the end of trusting in these things is. It's exile. It's death. And God can say this because God knows exactly where the history of Judah is and is headed. God knows Manasseh is right around the corner. He knows Ammon is right around the, the bend. He knows that those who will not seek Him for anything are coming down the pike. And He knows judgment is on the way. But it's also a reminder to us, if we're honest. You see, Hezekiah was a good king who made good reforms, who righted the ship of state, who cleaned up the temple, who wiped out the high places. Good things were happening. But you see, God says here to us through Isaiah, do not trust in reforms. 
They will not last. You can only trust in the Lord. He never goes away. Even in exile. He's still there. We're seeing that in Esther in the evenings, aren't we? Even when he's not mentioned or in the foreground, he's still there. He never goes away. He will not leave you till the end. What's Hezekiah's response? Look at verse 19. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Now again, I think we may be drawn a little bit astray with our first thoughts of what this means. Not because of a translation, because they're all pretty similar. But we look at those words and I think maybe... In our sanctified imagination, as we come to Bible characters thinking we're a lot smarter and better than they are. You know, like the dumb disciples don't just get what Jesus was saying. If we would have been there, we would have pointed it out. We would have told Peter what was what. If only we'd have been there with Isaiah, we could have straightened Hezekiah out, right? Especially after half a sermon. I don't think Hezekiah is saying here, Who cares about anything else? At least I'll be good. No. I think what he's saying here is a kind of Hebrew parallel. He says, the word that the Lord has spoken is good. And here is why it is good. God could crush me right this second. There's an Assyrian army right outside the door. And I have blown it. And there's no reason for him to save us. He could crush us right now. But in His mercy and grace, He's not going to do that. You see, Hezekiah sees the mercy. Do you see the mercy in God's judgment delayed? As Christians, we can look out on the television, at movie theaters, in newspapers, and see what a cesspool is out there in America today. But do you see the mercy and grace of God in preserving His people and keeping judgment at bay? Allowing opportunities for repentance. Allowing opportunities for ministry. You see, that's what Hezekiah sees. He knows Assyria is out there. Do you have that kind of contentment with God's Word? Because if it's not smug, Hezekiah is willing to trust what God has said is good. Because God hasn't given him the rosiest picture on earth. He hasn't said, well, I'll forgive you and you're... Children will sit on this physical throne in Jerusalem forever and you will never be in exile and nothing bad will ever happen to you and, and I will drive Cadillacs up to your doorway and just have enough faith and everything will be dandy. He doesn't say anything like that. What he says is, not in your day, but your children are going to serve Babylon and all this treasure is going to be gone. But you see, Hezekiah looks at that and he says... It must be good because it's God's Word. Not it's good, therefore it's God's Word. It's God's Word, therefore it's good. Is that how you look upon the Word of God? That will be a comfort to you when you have hard things out of the Word. When a dear friend who has rejected every entreaty you have given to them with the Gospel dies. And you look at God's Word and you say, 
I can't imagine this person bearing judgment and being in hell because they've rejected Christ. You must look at the Word and say, it is good because God has said it. Not because it makes me feel good, but because God has said it. It is good. Well, we see that trusting in the Lord brings great freedom. And Hezekiah has shown us the folly of forgetting to trust God. His son shows us that it is absolutely frightening to have to trust wholly to God. Because what happens is Hezekiah does indeed die. He gets his 15 more years. 15 more years that he knows are 15 years. And so, those 15 years that he spends with his son bear this kind of fruit. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephizbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will, build my, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. What's going on here? Things were going so well. Hezekiah was cleaning up the act, and he had 15 more years, 15 more years to have Bible study with his son, to have catechism classes, to point him to the Lord, to show him answers to prayer. And what happens? What happens are unexplainable times, if we're honest with ourselves. Because it's frightening to trust God when we, we can't explain what's going on. Where does Manasseh come from? He comes from Hezekiah. Hezekiah should have trained him to be godly, to follow after the Lord. This tells us two truths very quickly. The first is, you cannot count on God to pick up the slack for you with your children. There is no word from God that says He will save those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. There is a connection between godliness and godly families. But there is no foolproof scheme so that you can sleep on the job. And Hezekiah went to sleep on the job. He raised Manasseh wickedly. Question comes to you. 
Are you using your life to prepare others for service for the Lord? Hezekiah knew exactly how much time he had. You don't. I don't. Are you using every minute to prepare your children to walk with Jesus? Hezekiah could waste a month and say, well, I've still got 14 years and 11 months. You're not promised another day. Are you seizing the day right now to impress upon your children, your spouse, your friends, the need to follow Jesus? But what is Hezekiah doing? Or excuse me, what is Manasseh doing? There's a catalog of his offenses. I won't go into them in detail. You know many of them from their examples. He chooses the wrong role models. There's actually seven things that he does. He piles them up. You remember a few Sunday nights ago we talked about seven being the number of completion or perfection. And Manasseh has wickedness down to a science. The first thing he does is he worships idols like the pagan nations did. He says, you know what? I think I'll be like Moab. Now, there's a good model. I think I'll be like all of these pagan nations that got wiped out by Joshua. That's what I'll do. Yeah, that's the ticket. But that's not enough. The second thing he does is he lets the high places flourish. And he says, well, my second role model will be the first Jeroboam. You know, the wicked king of Israel that his sin eventually destroyed the whole nation of Israel? That's who I'll be like. Pagan nations, Jeroboam. Now, who else could I be like? I know Ahab. I'll build an Asherah and a Baal. Ahab's another good model, right? Three for three in wickedness. And then he says, you know what? I need to branch out a little bit. I think we ought to worship the sun and the moon and the stars in heaven like the Assyrians do. Because, of course, they're an incredibly wicked and abominable nation. Why don't I add them to my resume? He's four for four. And the fifth thing he does is he says, I think I'll put altars right in the temple of God. Right in the holiest place in the world, I'll put temples to false gods. Just like, you know, Ahaz did. Another winner of a king. And he's five for five. And then the sixth thing he does is he says, what can I do? I've, I've done all this with the temple. I've done this with the altar. I know I can sacrifice my child like Ahaz did. Sure, that would be great. That will give me good control. So he's six for six. And then the seventh thing he does is he reaches way back to the past and he says, you know, Saul had something when he tried to conjure up ghosts and work with witches and omens. I think I'll do that too. The wickedness is piled on and on and on. And if we're honest with ourselves, the question we ask is not, how can he be so wicked? The question we ask is, how can this guy be king so long? Right? We've been in First and Second Kings for a long time, and pretty much when somebody's this bad... Sometimes they only reign six or seven days or a couple of months. This guy's king for 55 years, more than any other king ever in Judah. And if we look to the end of the chapter, it doesn't seem like there's any adversity. There's no Assyrians attacking. There's no Babylonians attacking. There's no Persians attacking. The guy lives 55 years as king and he dies peacefully. What is up with this? Where is God with the thunderbolt? Or the poison? Or the falling through the porch? Come on, God, do something. 
This can't be right. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will not use the knowledge of the Scriptures we have to pretend life doesn't have jagged edges. That there are puzzles in the world. There are things that we don't understand, that don't make sense, that don't fit neatly into a box, because God's ways are not our ways. We don't exactly know why. Maybe it was a judgment upon Judah for decade upon decade upon decade of wickedness. To have the most wicked king ever. For the longest period ever. But if we're honest with ourselves, this is unexplainable. We don't know what to do. But it's not just that it's unexplainable that bothers us. It makes us afraid. We're afraid because we know we have to trust God in the midst of coming judgment. Because how bad was Manasseh? How much of a judgment? Those of you that are my age or a little bit older will recognize, we might say to ourselves, well, how bad was he? And the king of late night would say he was so bad that not only was he worse than any king in Judah, he was worse than the pagans that God wiped out. That's how bad he was. He was so bad. We have legend that Isaiah was sawn in half by Manasseh. This is a horrible judgment that Judah is seeing. But you have to remember there are faithful followers of God in the midst of this storm. When you say to yourself, I hate that budget that came down. I hate what's going on in our country. I hate the way that what is passes for entertainment. I hate what's going on with kids. I hate what's going on with this. I hate what's going on with that. You need to realize that God's people have ever been in the midst of trials and difficulties. And we've seen many judgments before, haven't we? The only problem is now, the prophets come and in verse 11 they say, this is no mini judgment, this is it. God's done with you. He is so done with you. Have you ever said that to your kids? I am so done with you now. Get to your room and come back next Wednesday. Because I'm done with you. That's what God says. And He impresses upon us how horrible this judgment is. He says it will be terrible. People will hear it and their ears will tingle. They will be afraid. In verse 13, he says it will be inevitable. It's going to be like a plumb line. You know, I'm going to use the same contractor that bulldozed Samaria. And then he uses an imagery of cleaning. He says the plate will be turned upside down. There will not be a speck of food left on it. I will wipe it clean as a bone. It is total judgment. And he says in verse 14, you will be absolutely helpless. You shall be before your enemies. There is nothing you can do. You will be destroyed. This is a pretty horrible thing. But the final thing we see is that it is never too late to trust God. Because we know from Second Chronicles that Manasseh repented. He was given a taste of that judgment, dragged off to Assyria. He repented. And yet at the same time, it doesn't wipe out the legacy that he had. But it is never too late to trust God. So what do we do when times are difficult? 
when judgment is coming down the pike, when we're afraid, when we've made stupid mistakes and forgotten to trust God, we do this. We remember three things. The first is that it is never too early to trust God. It's never too early. Don't wait for the deathbed confession. Trust the Lord now, today. The second thing we need to remember is it's never too often to trust God. You can never trust God too early. You can never trust Him too often. The third thing we need to remember is we were not meant to wander around. We were meant to go on a journey to walk with Jesus. That's what these chapters are calling you to. To trusting Him every step of the way. Going through the journey, no matter where it takes you, even if it takes you, as David said, into the valley of the shadow of death. Trust God today. Lean upon Him. And he will be there for 